In 2017, I had the true privilege of traveling with Dr. Stroop and 11 of our Truett students on a study abroad trip to Ndola, Zambia, where Northrise University is located. What we did is we had a two-week class where we studied the book of Acts, and we talked about the importance of what it meant to be a witness in this world, but we had these conversations in a cross-cultural setting with the 11 Truett students and 20 of our brothers and sisters in Christ uh, there at Northrise University in Zambia. One of the real privileges of a a trip and experience like that, it's the people that you get to meet. And one of the people that has left a strong impression on me was a man named Terence Simutoe, whose wife Alice was on the faculty there at Northrise University. Terence Simutoe is a bivocational pastor and farmer, and he was highly discouraged. Some of that discouragement came from his pastoring. He had pastored a large, thriving congregation in Lusaka until they moved to Indola for his wife to serve on the faculty there at Northrise University. When he arrived in Indola, he began a church start, and all of the complications that come with church starts had been weighing on him. But his real source of discouragement came from his farming. And it wasn't just Terrence, but it was virtually all of the farmers in Zambia. In 2016, it was the worms that ate the maize. And then in the early portion of 2017, they think that an insect was accidentally imported into the country. And it devastated all of the peas and beans crops. And what you were left with was utter devastation. It was catastrophic crop failure, they weren't even able to salvage the seeds they would need to plant in the future, and the government was going to have to step in to supply them with seeds. His hardship led to discouragement. When I read the Gospel of Mark, it sure seems to me that Mark's readers were probably experiencing many of the same kinds of emotions that Terence Sumitoe was experiencing. We think that Mark's readers had endured a double dose of suffering and that what follows closely behind is discouragement. It would at least be plausible to assume that perhaps Mark's readers were living in and around Rome Perhaps they had either experienced or been victims of the Neronian persecution, maybe even seeing martyrdoms of some of the pillars of the church like Peter and Paul, and it left them asking a lot of hard questions. It may have appeared to Mark's readers as if Christianity was losing ground. It may have appeared to them as if the reign of Nero and the Roman Empire just might end up being more powerful than the reign of God. It may have appeared to them as if the kingdom of God would experience complete and utter crop failure. When I read Mark chapter 4, it sure seems to me to be a response to that type of discouragement and despair. We sometimes just call Mark 4 the parable chapter. 
Jesus is teaching a variety of parables, but Mark narrates three of those parables for us. We've got the parable of the sower from verses 3 through 20. We've got the parable of the growing seed in verses 26 to 29. And then we have the parable of the mustard seed in verses 30 to 32. And they all share the same learning objective. They're all emphasizing the same point. And it's about the kingdom of God. Understanding the kingdom of God and the reign of God in this world. Notice in verse 11, Jesus says that the parable of the sower is teaching you the mystery of the kingdom of God. In verse 26 and in verse 30, he begins the next two parables by saying the kingdom of God is like. In essence, what Jesus is saying is that a robust and rightly ordered understanding of the kingdom of God about the work and the ministry of Jesus in this world is the antidote to the profound discouragement that often we encounter in our lives. So I'd like to focus uh, the rest of our time on the parable of the sower in verses 3 through 20. I think we have rightly called it the parable of the sower because the only person in this parable is the sower, and the sower is the one doing all of the action. This sower sows seed indiscriminately. He does not pick or choose or use prejudice. He just spreads. And it sure seems that this sower is a depiction of Jesus and his ministry in the Gospel of Mark. That Jesus is going and spreading the seed, which he describes as the word. It's the ministry and the message about the kingdom of God. And it is good news. It's good news because despite the fact that as far back as Genesis 3, human sin has disrupted a rightly ordered covenant relationship with God. But God has not stood back. God has been pursuing us, pursuing a right relationship with us. And, by, and through Jesus Christ, God has most clearly and definitively brought about the circumstances that can lead to that right covenant relationship, restoring the blessing and the blessedness that was lost many, many eons ago. This is good news with this sower, and yet when we start reading this parable, we're confronted with some discouraging information from the outset. The initial results are not good. In fact, by my count, it sure appears that the sower loses 75% of his seed. This could be very discouraging. I think Jesus encounters the same degree of failure throughout the Gospel of Mark. This is almost a, a lens for interpreting the kind of rejection that Jesus experiences as he moves throughout this Gospel Jesus uses this parable to illustrate three sources of this failure to respond appropriately to the ministry and message of Jesus and the kingdom of God. He talks about three types of soil, and the first is the hardened pathway. It's those whom Satan derails. In 4.15, Jesus says these are the ones on the path where the word is sown, and when when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. In essence, some never experience the reign of God in their lives because Satan's schemes block them. 
Satan robs them of hearing the good news, the gracious, merciful word of Jesus. Failing to hear about the way that God seeks to redeem us from chaos and destruction and devastation, Satan prevents belief, understanding, faith, and obedience, and the end result is crop failure. The second type of soil is the rocky soil. It's those who are derailed by external pressure. In 4.16 to 17, Jesus says, And these are the ones sown on the rocky soil. When they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy, but they have no root and endure only for a while. And then when trouble or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Jesus is talking about those who have heard the word and initially receive it, and perhaps even dedicate themselves to serving Jesus and his ministry. And yet, their roots don't go very deep. They haven't allowed Jesus to establish the kind of deep and abiding roots down in our soul that will keep us anchored in the midst of gale force winds. These people are often uprooted, Christ, who suffered, had called his disciples to be willing to lose their lives and suffer, and yet these people think hardship is unusual. And when that opposition and hardship and conflict arise, these disciples knowingly and willingly abandon Jesus and his call, and the result is crop failure. The third type of soil is the thorny soil, And these are those that are conquered by their personal agendas. In Mark 4, 18 and 19, Jesus says, And others are those sown among the thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world, and the lure of wealth and the desire for other things comes in and chokes the word, and it yields nothing. Initially, these people declare Jesus to be Lord of their lives, And yet, in the end, they bow to the gods of their own desires, appetites, and aspirations. Their lives and ministries are characterized by sinful compromises. They trade in the God who created the world for the world itself. And this type of crop failure will choke God's good life right out of us. So, in sum... Jesus talks about three types of problems. He talks about when you have the the derailment and the hardening and the discouragement that comes from Satan. He talks about the external pressure that can uproot us with gale force winds. And then he talks about the kind of things that just grow up from inside of us until they choke us out. I'm wondering... Have any of these influences compromised us and our devotion to Jesus and our call to his ministry? Has Satan distracted us from the ministry and message of Jesus? Do either human applause or human maltreatment uproot God's leadership in our lives? Have we compromised Jesus' call because we overprioritize the role of personal success pleasure, or gratification. Two weeks into COVID, my wife picked up our puppy. 
Her name is Lily. She is a salt and pepper colored standard schnauzer. She's now 14 months old and 35 pounds, and she's the most difficult puppy I have ever been around in my entire life. We did the thing you're supposed to do as good dog parents. Uh, you, uh, we get her, and on the third day we've got her, we take her to the vet for a checkup and to get her first shots. During COVID, if you haven't been to a vet, you drive up, they come out and get your dog, they take the dog in, they finish, and then the vet calls you on the phone. And so the vet calls us, and she tells us that we have a wonderfully healthy puppy that we're really going to love. And then she used these ominous words. She said, she has a dominant personality, and you're going to need professional help with this dog. So we called the really fine people in Robinson at the Quell Creek uh, Dog Kennels and Training Facility, and we did two hour-long training sessions on two, two weeks apart uh, that were only minimally helpful. So the trainers say to us, well, you know, if you really want uh, to help this dog, what this dog needs is, is uh, puppy uh, boot camp. That's what this dog needs is puppy boot camp. It's two weeks of nothing but training for this dog. We can control the dog's environment uh, 24 hours a day. And if we have that, boy, we can do wonders with this dog. So we take Lily, when she's four months old, to puppy boot camp. Really fine people there. And... Uh, uh, two different trainers were working with Lily. Uh, Justine uh, was, uh, was the head trainer, and uh, she loved Lily, and she could tell that we loved Lily. So uh, she kept calling to give us updates during those two weeks, mostly to, to kind of, you know, let us know the dog is still alive and still eating and, and all those kinds of things. Three times she calls in two weeks. The last thing she says at the end of all three phone calls, all three, we need you to lower your expectations <laughs> for where, where Lily will be at the end of these two weeks. When we go to what is amounts to uh, a puppy graduation from boot camp, uh, which is really a way for them to train us, uh, they just don't give you the treats, you know, to do this, but uh, we show up, and it's a, it's a metal barn, and I think I just wandered too far back into the corner of this barn, and when I got there... Um, you couldn't see it from where we normally were, but when I get there, there's this uh, big marker board, kind of like the one in uh, Truett 107, right? It's a big marker board, and it's set up with a grid uh, with lines, and it has the name for nine dogs on the left side, and then it has ten obedience objectives or training commands they're trying to teach the dogs uh, they're going across, and as best I can tell, the dogs were averaging anywhere from five to seven check marks, Lily, you've guessed it, she just had one. Uh, the only dog that was anywhere close to being that far back. Basically, my dog failed puppy kindergarten is what she did. And so we start asking questions to the trainer. You know, can you explain to us why this dog is having such a difficult time with uh, obedience and, and training? And Justine immediately said, oh, well, that's simple. Lily has very big emotions. And when those emotions kick in, all of her training goes out the window. She said, you know, the truth is, Lily's very smart. 
In fact, I can teach her to do almost anything as long as I use food. But as soon as I take the food away, she just does what she wants. She said most dogs, the hard part is just teaching them what you want them to do, and then they obey because they love their people. But so far, Lily's not showing any of that kind of emotion. Lily's fear, or uh, one of her biggest emotions is fear. She'll hear sounds. You know, they don't even have to be loud sounds. I mean, it can be the neighbor's air conditioning just turning on, and it freaks her out. And uh, if we didn't have her on the leash, she would just run away from home. All she knows is that she's afraid, and she's trying to get away from what scares her. And if she actually did get away, she would find out that there are far more scary sounds the farther away from home she gets. Sometimes it's not the fear It's her own desires. Some things are logical, like the squirrels, but then there's plenty of things that make no sense to me, like a blowing leaf or a dandelion. She's probably pulled my arm out of socket about 30 times trying to go after a dandelion or just a tasty morsel that crosses her path. And then every now and then, I don't know how else to describe her, but she's a demon dog. I mean, I I just don't know what else to say. Sometimes she's just possessed for a little while, and she's more like a Tasmanian devil than my cherished pet. Uh, I think you know where I'm headed with this. Lily, unfortunately, reminds me a whole lot of myself and virtually all of us. Our big emotions often result in discipleship and ministry failures. Jesus willingly suffered and died and called us to lose our lives, yet when we experience criticism and conflict and hardship, we often flee for our lives, leaving behind the God who has called us to serve him. Our roots are so shallow, we're blown right over by the wind. At other times, you and I chase the squirrels and the blowing leaves and the dandelions and the tasty morsels. My pastor, Matt Snowden, often says we have broken wanters. Our wanters are just broken. When something desirable lures us, we're tempted to throw out all of the training and chase after desirable things that never actually turn out to be as wonderful as they appear. And sometimes you and I are just hardened to the point that we can't even take in the good news of God's grace and God's mercy in our lives. But no matter the source, felled crops are worthless when the harvest arrives. My natural inclination when I read this parable is to interpret it as a call to action. I interpret it that I'm bad soil, and I need to get myself uh, rightly ordered and turn myself into good soil. But that's a very difficult interpretation to sustain exegetically, and it's even more difficult to live out. Soil has no power to change itself. Impoverished soil doesn't just decide to become rich and fertile soil. And we all will discover the limits of our own willpower to improve our lives and alter our habits and reconstitute our essential natures. 
all of us, we're all destined to fail out of basic obedience training. All of us allow our big emotions to lead us into catastrophic crop failure. And what we really need is the sower to transform us. Instead of a laundry list of action in Mark 4, and in fact, if Jesus had given it, the disciples in Mark would have really gone in really unhelpful directions. Instead of a laundry list, Jesus says, listen. That's what he says, listen. Notice that this parable begins and ends with an imperative to listen, the verb akuo. In verse four, uh, uh, chapter 4, verse 3, Jesus commands the crowd to listen. In 9, Jesus indicates that anyone who hopes to understand must listen. Altogether, in verses 1 through 34, Jesus uses 13 verbal forms related to the verb akuo. Listen, 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 listen. Jesus stresses the need to hear the good news about God's grace and God's intervention and to let it sink down deep in our souls. None of these parables in Mark 4 are about us and our actions. These are about Jesus, who he is, and what he does. The parable of the sower isn't so much a remedy, it's a diagnostic tool. It's, it's a symptoms chart. It's the kind of things that will prevent us from experiencing the life that God intends for us, like yielding to threats and fears that don't come from God, or racing after things that are alluring instead of eternal, or allowing satanic heart hardness to prevent us from even hearing God's word. He's telling us to look out for these type of plights because they will end up in crop failure. But thankfully, Jesus talks about a fourth type of soil. He talks about the good soil. In 420, Jesus says, And these are the ones sown on the good soil. They hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. Just as God first declared creation to be good and humanity to be very good, Jesus has the power to restore goodness, the goodness of God's original plan. Human sin has not eradicated God's goodness. Goodness is a byproduct of Jesus and his ministry. The good soil is less about what the disciples do. It's more about what the suffering servant has done, is doing, and will do. And only the sower can improve our soil. Jesus does more than just hope that we'll grow out of our puppy stage. Jesus points us to the kingdom of God. Both God's gracious intervention in our world and God's gracious intervention in our own lives. Even today, after 2,000 years, we too may be discouraged by the suffering we see all around us. We too may be discouraged because it appears the church is losing ground. We may be tempted to lose heart when God's good world appears to be less just, more violent, and increasingly disinclined to place their faith in Jesus Christ. And we may be discouraged because we realize that our own devotion to Jesus and his call upon our lives has atrophied. But that's precisely why Jesus commands his disciples 
and us to listen. The primary point is that God's reign is indeed breaking in. Yes, of course it is meeting with resistance, but that resistance cannot and ultimately will not defeat God's purposes. Yes, of course it begins in small ways, but the harvest will be plentiful. Yes, of course we see evil all around us, but the kingdom of God cultivates good. Most importantly, when the news of God's merciful reign falls upon our ears and our hearts like seed falling on soil, it has the power to restore the adjective good to God's creation and to our lives. One day, God's reign will be fully enacted on earth as it is in heaven. And perhaps God's grace will produce a 30-fold, a 60-fold, or even a hundredfold yield through some who are listening to this good news today.